So this is another day in which you save the front page of the newspaper. It seems like there's a lot of those. Every time this happens, you think, okay, I'm going to save the impeachment front page. Now you say, I'm going to save the one that says Trump indicted. And then they start piling up, and you can't believe that events have even superseded the last unbelievable event. I mean, it's creating an incredible stack in this period. You know, Donald Trump always wanted to be one for the history books. Uh, Well, (laughs) first twice (laughs) impeached president, first twice acquitted president, first president uh, to refuse in American history to concede an election he lawfully lost. And now first president indicted. Amazing. And the details, no matter what, are going right. to titillate school children from here on out. I mean, how are you going to – you're going to have to use the word in every history book, something to do with hush money and porn star. I mean, for me anyway, one of the things that is most interesting and and jarring is to see a man who has – he revels in being in power mm. and in control in a situation where he's he's lost control. Mm-hmm. He, he He's powerless. He is now part of the legal system, criminal justice system, and he's got to be treated like everybody else. It's, it's just an amazing transformation, you I think. Do, you see him passing through this membrane between the world in which you can say anything you want because you're not under oath and the world in which the things you say have real accountability. And there's an irony to the fact that he's now finding himself in the same situation that some of his most dutiful lieutenants have been in and have suffered for it. You know, Weisselberg, Flynn, Bannon, one after another, people who thought that they could kind of transport the same sort of liberty from the truth that they lived with in regular life into the criminal justice world. And it turns out, actually, you get in trouble when you lie. And that's going to be a new experience. Of course, Michael Cohen, his longtime professional liar on Donald Trump's behalf and, and fixer, Cohen actually went to jail for the actual crimes underpinning this. So that's what I find particularly fascinating about this case. We're still waiting to see the specifics in the indictment that uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has secured. But it's not theoretical that there was a crime here in the sense that Michael Cohn actually literally went to jail yeah. for uh, this, among other uh, crimes that he went to jail for. And so <laughs> it's a fascinating question about whether or not Trump will be held accountable for the same facts that that Michael Cohen was. But uh, it's not a theoretical issue about whether some wrongdoing occurred in the sense that there was a guy who literally had to serve time for it. I think the difference, though, of course, was that that was it's it's an easier case in federal law. Mm. And this is a state prosecutor. So, I mean, a, D, a city prosecutor, a DA. So yeah. so that it's a little more complicated. But uh, but it does seem, I think, is sort of a matter of poetic justice and just about actual fairness important that that the person who directed the crime not get off when the person who who was taking orders to do it actually served time in prison. I think everybody can feel that 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 fairness gap. Yeah. Um regardless of the details of the law. I, I also I mean there's yeah, there's a kind of classic principal agent thing there going on that if, if Michael Cohen's gonna do the time, then so does the person who did the crime. I mean I am aware of the arguments that down the road you may begin to see conservative local prosecutors deciding to try to bring cases against Democratic presidents. But I, I have to tell you, I think that <laughs> banana republics are getting a bad rap right now. Because actually if you want to know really what makes a banana republic, it's not going 
and prosecuting a former president. It's allowing certain people to live above the law. That is actually the defining feature of what makes a dysfunctional country. And I think you see all these Republicans saying, oh, gosh, you know, we're now going down the path of these of these deteriorated nations. Well, no, actually, we're going down the path of a bunch of advanced democracies that have done this before, like Israel, France, Italy. South Korea has gone after five former presidents. And the reason you do it is because you're trying to prevent it from happening again. Well, and of course, we've gone after in this country numerous politicians. I mean, the only difference is that it's a president. But we've had, you know, we had Spiro Agnew, a vice president. We've had um, any number of, of major political figures have been charged and many convicted of crimes in this country. It's, it, it's, it's, it's fundamental to the rule of law that, it, it, that everybody's bound by it regardless of their power. Well, and yet previous presidents were so concerned, even in the midst of scandal, to avoid breaking this barrier, uh, this psychological barrier that Trump has now broken of becoming the first president to be charged. I mean, in some ways, that's what drove Watergate was the, uh, you know, the deal that President Ford made to pardon Richard Nixon, uh, and in order to avoid this kind of prosecution. Bill Clinton, we talked about the Star Report. It's very likely that he would have faced charges, in fact, for lying uh, under oath uh, and perjuring himself. And uh, he made a deal, in fact, explicitly with prosecutors to avoid doing that that involved him surrendering his law license for a certain period of time after he left the presidency. And again, that's because he didn't want Mm. this kind of stain on his historical record. And it's very interesting. There's revisionist thinking now about Ford's pardoning of Nixon. And a a number of historians, it was very much um, it, it was unpopular with the public, but then celebrated with sort of the wise hands and heads of Washington. And, um, you know, everybody from Ted Kennedy on said that they thought that it, it saved the republic from being torn asunder over the whole thing. Now, th- not so much. I mean, basically, if you listen to Michael Beschloss, the presidential historian, um, John Meacham, yeah. another presidential historian, they, they, they feel that by having let Nixon off the hook, basically, that it's sent a message of impunity for presidents and maybe kind of set the stage for where we are now. I totally agree with that. I actually think that we have to think of this less in sort of classic uh, Washington political terms about what you do or do not do to former presidents and put it in the terms that are actually appropriate, which is white collar crime. I remember talking to the federal judge in New York, Jed Rakoff, about this. And he said, look, there is a century of good studies on this fact that the only way you actually can bend the curve of deterring white-collar crime is by actively and publicly seeking accountability for high-profile wrongdoers. If you don't do it, it acculturates that kind of behavior. And that's where we are now. But, you know, I think the thing is there's been a fear that presidents are basically too big to jail, um, and that um, that it will rip the country apart. And and I think you know it's an open question how this is going to be received. And 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 you have to be somewhat concerned when you see something like uh, DeSantis, Governor of Florida, saying he's not going to cooperate with extradition um, measures. To it, it it turns out, of course, it, it would violate the Constitution if he didn't, and it's not going to be necessary anyway. But he's signaling. Uh, a lack, a, a defiance of the law here, um, and I think you know we're you know we have to worry for after seeing January six wh- how this will hit 
um, the part of the country that will do anything to help Trump. Well, I think, Jane, that's a really important point. If you look at the stampede, and it really is a stampede on the part of Republican politicians there, you know, the rushing, rushing to the defense of Donald Trump. These are even people who have been publicly uh tentatively criticizing him, saying he shouldn't be uh, the president again, that, you know, it's time to move on. Even those people are rushing to criticize an indictment they have not yet seen and to, you know, profess their ongoing loyalty for Donald Trump. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, who, of course, owes his very narrow victory in the speakership to a faction of extreme pro-Trump House members, He said that the American public will not stand for this and how outrageous it is. And to me, that really echoed some of the inflammatory language in the run-up to January 6th. Uh, Donald Trump himself is not only fundraising off of his indictment, but using incredibly maximalist terms about how this is a violation of American principles. It's the last battle calling his troops forth. And so, of course, uh, it's not just, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And even in a vacuum, of course, there are real legal issues around whether this is the strongest kind of case to bring, because it's, it's not unprecedented even that there should be a politician accused of inappropriately paying hush money. I've been thinking a lot about John Edwards uh, over the last 24 hours, a kind of a forgotten name, a footnote to history, maybe. Uh, the the former, the North Carolina Democrat, uh, himself, by the way, an accomplished trial lawyer, he was literally accused uh, by federal prosecutors of uh, illegally paying uh, hush money to silence uh, news of an affair right before an election. Uh, he actually was acquitted. And that is a precedent that uh, I'm sure Trump's lawyers uh, have looked very closely at in this case. I'm curious how you guys think about the problem that other Republican candidates are facing now, where on the one hand, they have to somehow condemn this case against Donald Trump and then also run against this guy in the primary. That strikes me as a completely bizarre contortion. Well, by the way, Evan, this is exactly why Donald Trump is and remains the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, exactly for the reason you said, Uh, because he once again makes them small by making himself big. Now, he does it in a way that almost no one else would want to. Uh, He's a master of the, you know, as long as you spell my name right, it's good publicity (laughs) school. Uh, And that now even applies to his handling of this unprecedented criminal indictment. But the other people remain the minor stars in his orbit. This does obviously play into the idea that he likes to project of himself as the victim of, of, of a witch hunt and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, I've got to say, you know, in terms of whether this makes him look big in the eyes of everyone else, I don't think anybody looks big when they walk into a courtroom Agreed. and have to stand in front of a judge who's on a higher level and say, yes, sir. And yeah. you think I'm thinking about Trump and how much he loves to tell these stories where he always d- pretends that someone has called him sir. <laughs> he actually has to call somebody else sir in this in this occasion. And I think, you know, it 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 levels him. I think that's a huge insight actually. I mean, I I think the reality is that so much of his persona rests on this projection and this creation of an imagery around him and the, the, the status he enjoys. And he has now entered a completely different phase of his life. And 
I think if we're being honest, none of us know how this plays out. <laughs> well, that's right. There's a lot of cocky talk uh, coming from the Trump camp right now. But, you know, I, I actually agree with you, Jane, that in the long term, it's hard to see this benefiting any politician. But I, I just I think it's important to point out, too, that this is the beginning of what is likely to be a long new chapter for Donald Trump. He may be crossing some threshold right now, but if, in fact, he is indicted in these other very serious criminal cases uh, that are being looked into against him in the state of Georgia and by Jack Smith, the Justice Department special counsel who's looking at two, two different very serious criminal cases, then this indictment by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg may well end up being uh, almost an asterisk, a footnote, uh, certainly an important moment when something that had never happened before in American history happened. But, it, you know, we just we don't know where these other legal cases are going. And and if there are three or four indictments against Donald Trump, this one is likely not to be the most serious one uh, in, in just in terms of legal and criminal jeopardy. Well, we talked on last week's show about some of those cases in detail. and Listeners can go back and, and, and listen for that. I will say, I think to your point, Susan, that in some ways this is also now a challenge for all of us who think and write about politics to not become the minor stars in Donald Trump's orbit, that it's actually on us to remember there are other things facing this country. There are other issues. And that's not to minimize the importance of this moment. But it's also to say, let's not allow ourselves to get pulled back into his vortex. There is a tremendous number of things we we can and will be talking about. Well, we have actually a slightly different topic today, but it's quite related. So let's get into it. Welcome to The Political Scene. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Evan Osnos. While we still haven't seen the actual indictment of the former president, but on closer examination, this case wasn't just about hush money. It was an attempted pre-election cover-up to hide information from voters that could have affected the outcome of the election. And in that respect, it was neither an isolated incident in Trump's political career or in the country's history. I'm pretty sure all three of us would agree that presidential elections are often blood sports. But there's one type of campaign dirty trick that casts an especially dark shadow, the secret hijacking of U.S. national security policy to help a candidate win. In recent years, there have been several stunning revelations along these lines, from Nixon's sabotage of the Vietnam War peace talks in 1968 to Trump's so-called perfect phone call with Zelensky. Now we have a shocking new report in the New York Times, which, if it proves accurate, shows that Republican operatives in 1980 tried to sabotage Jimmy Carter's campaign by secretly prolonging the Iran hostage crisis. Evan? To start, can you briefly set out the scene 43 years ago? Yeah. You know, this is one of those chapters of American history that it burns indelibly for some people and for others. I, it's worth reminding uh, about how significant this was. In November of 1979, you had 52 Americans at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, and they were taken hostage. This is in the midst, of course, of the Iranian Revolution. Jimmy Carter was in the White House, and it became the defining and really paralyzing fact of his presidency. This is an ABC News special. 
The Iran crisis. America held hostage. The special report that we planned to bring you tonight was about domestic politics. But we think the crisis in Iran is more urgent right now than the campaign here at home. The United States will not yield to blackmail. After 30 days of unsuccessfully trying to get the American hostages out of Tehran, my hope and my prayer is that they will be released very soon, but I cannot predict that. Do you still consider it a crisis, Mr. President? I know His efforts ultimately unsuccessfully to get the hostages out became this kind of grand metaphor for uh, his performance. At one point, people will remember that they tried a rescue mission in April of 1980, and it ended in disaster. A helicopter crashed uh, crashed into a plane in the Iranian desert, um, killing eight service members. Our rescue team knew, and I knew, that the operation was certain to be difficult, and it was certain to be dangerous. Reagan ended up defeating Carter in 1980 uh, in a, uh, really a landslide victory. And after his defeat, Carter's administration struck a deal that released billions of dollars in frozen Iranian assets in return for uh, the American hostages, and they were released on Inauguration Day, just minutes after Reagan took office. Day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency and day one of freedom for 52 Americans. Though thousands of miles apart, these two historic events moved almost on parallel tracks today. The new president had not been in office an hour when the former hostages became free men and women again. And it has really gone down in history as... Um, an example of the way in which this kind of foreign affairs can actually have a, f- a fundamental effect on a presidential election. So, well, Susan, um, thanks to reporting by Peter Baker, your husband at The New York Times, um, we've now learned what some of Reagan's allies were doing behind the scenes to manipulate the election. What was uncovered? Well, obviously I'm biased, Jane. Uh, you know, but I think Peter's story is an amazing example, first of all, about what we don't know. Wait, so let's can I be just clear. say right here, butting in, I share your bias here. I thought it was a phenomenal, <laughs> mind-blowing story. And last I checked, we're not married to him. So I think we have some objectivity. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I appreciate so, the validation. Okay. I appreciate okay. the validation. All right. So what did he find? What, what, what is this? Let's say, first of all, reminder that secrets hold for a long time, but ultimately uh, we do find things out. And that's why people are still writing books about Richard Nixon and Watergate today, or Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter and Iran-Contra, or in a way, uh, Donald Trump. I'm pretty sure that decades from now, we'll still be finding out, you know, more crazy stuff that happened over the last few years in American politics. But this chapter, I think, is a particularly important one. And what happened was uh, Peter interviewed Ben Barnes, a former Democratic politician in Texas, again, uh, former lieutenant governor, who happened to be very, very close to John Connolly, who was his mentor. John Connolly was an extremely important figure in Texas politics, in national politics. He was a Democratic governor of Texas. Then he became a Republican. He himself ran for the Republican nomination in 1980. Then he was, uh, you know, endorsing Ronald Reagan in the general election in 1980. There was thought that that John Connolly was sort of campaigning for a senior job, maybe secretary of state in the Reagan administration. It's in that context that Ben Barnes kept a secret for many, many years. And now with Jimmy Carter, 
uh, literally on his deathbed uh, in hospice care at home in Plains, Georgia. Barnes seems to have wanted to come forward and to... uh, I think right what he perceived was the wrong that he himself had done of not speaking out more forcefully and and clearly uh, sooner in time to to talk about this remarkable trip that he and John Connolly took around the Middle East in 1980 uh, in the context of the general election in which Barnes says in this interview in the New York Times, he says that uh, John Connolly would at each stop, his job was to go to these leaders in the Middle East and essentially to try to get the word to the Iranians, don't release the hostages. Wait until Ronald Reagan is elected. After the election, you'll get a better deal. Uh, it's circumstantial. Uh, he doesn't have notes or tape recordings of these meetings. Uh, he says he remembers it vividly. There are circumstantial details that match up. In other words, uh, the historical records suggest that he did take the trip uh, to the Middle East, that he was on it with John Connolly, that a month afterwards that he and Connolly met in an airport lounge uh, with Bill Casey, uh, who would go on to become Reagan's CIA director as a key figure in previous reports about the October surprise. And so... It's a fascinating chapter because it reveals, first of all, that secrets can remain hidden for a long time. But second of all, that this was a kind of an election interference that that was extraordinary, right? It was essentially saying, I will subordinate American foreign policy and the lives of these hostages to the political needs of this Republican candidate. Not surprisingly, the reaction has been outraged by many uh, Republican accolades of Ronald Reagan who want to make sure uh, that their guy is not tarred with uh, what would be a really dastardly act. There certainly has been sort of a gathering of the troops I've seen on, you know, the New York, all over the the, the kind of the right wing press and, and you know, um, people who've worked with Reagan say impossible. He could never have done such a thing. He cared so much about the hostages and 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 all of that kind of thing. But I actually think, I mean, this the, what struck me, because these, of course, these stories have been bouncing around f- for years. Um, I, what struck me is th- this was a first hand on the record eyewitness report of somebody who was in the room with as they made these trips and had these conversations which was stunning it really moves the story much further into the column of of credibility i think and um, I, you know, I, I, you, it really raises a question. I think, Evan, you know, what, what do you think the effect of this manipulation might have been? This October surprise, if in fact it really happened, what, what do you do? You think it would have affected the outcome of that election? Well, I can tell you that one person who absolutely believes it was essential was Jimmy Carter. I mean, he has spent the last uh, four decades, in effect. Uh, thinking and studying and gathering other uh, pieces of information about this. And, and it's worth pointing out that, as as you guys have indicated, this story builds on what is ha- has been a growing mountain of evidence uh, that does support the uh, portrait of events. I mean, the, one of the key factors being uh, came out only in 2013. To Susan's point, it sometimes takes decades uh, that there was a visit by Bill Casey uh, to Madrid uh, for reasons that still remain unknown. And if, in fact, that was uh, a meeting related to this, that would be also further evidence uh, that there was this effort. But I, I think it's worth pointing out that as 
as much as Jimmy Carter and others believe that this had a, a dispositive effect on the race, it, he was actually at that point running uh, a difficult race. You know, it, at the time, it looked closer than it ended up being. The economy was in very bad shape. Gas prices were high. Inflation was high. So we don't really know what the ultimate effect was, except that the truth was that the hostage crisis had pushed his approval ratings way down into the 20s, lower, in fact, than Nixon's after Watergate. So it's impossible to tell the story of American politics of the last 40 years without acknowledging how central this event was. I mean, I, I, I was just coming, you know, I was, I guess, in college. And, I, I, I you know, the image that Jimmy Carter had was of, you know, he was weak, he was loser, um, and and Reagan was running on the idea of being strong, strong man, strength, and you know hawkishness. So it, I I can imagine. I mean, maybe this is the reason I think this is so important. Is I can imagine how the whole narrative would have flipped if if Carter had succeeded in some really daring do rescue of the hostages and they all came home before the election. It it would have been conceivably a, a different outcome, certainly a very different story, a different image for Carter than, than what, what he was saddled with. Um, I, I have to say, I, looking back also at the at the, the sort of slow drip, drip, drip of information on this, this story, I think that 2013 news break is really interesting yeah. because what what it was a story by Bob Perry who's no longer alive a very interesting investigative reporter and what he did was find something in the paper presidential papers of George H W Bush that suggested that in fact what people had said which was that Casey had met in Madrid with Iranians who were trying to manipulate the hostage situation that that actually did happen it looks like it did from the presidential papers of George H.W. Bush. And worse, in a way, was that there was kind of a cover-up of this because there was a congressional investigation into it by Lee Hamilton. And that piece of evidence was not turned over to Congress. It was stuck in those presidential papers until Bob Perry found it in 2013, many years later. And by then, of course, you know, people moved on. There are plenty of other things to think about. This is a counterfactual history. It was seemed ancient, and you know, um, it was it was you know it. But 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 just like this Ben Barnes um, kind of confession, forty three years later, it really makes you want to look back and try to put the pieces together. It also changes our understanding, if I'm right, Jane, of the. Iran-Contra scandal. I mean, this changes in some sense uh, how we understand the timeline, the origins, and the nature of it. Susan, is that a piece of what we're learning in this too? Well, I mean, you know, Jane literally you know, wrote the book on, on Iran-Contra, and I, I want to know what she thinks about it. People have always been interested in the story of the uh, possible October surprise because it seemed to echo the later Reagan uh, willingness to trade arms uh, to the Iranians for hostages, there is uh, the possibility that uh, there was a deal already uh, to trade arms to the Iranians. Even, you know, years earlier, the the Iran-Contra affair did not happen until uh, uh, many years later in 1986. And so it would be really striking and notable and possible, therefore plausible, Ben Barnes, this new story, is one man's story. 
And what's very interesting about it is that it's not, it wasn't previously known to those who spent years writing and thinking and trying to dig up evidence uh, who focused on Bill Casey, understandably, uh, someone who was very close to Ronald Reagan and the inner circle and later became famous as the architect in some ways of the Iran-Contra scandal. So there is a through line with William Casey. What's fascinating was that this is a whole different story. This is a whole new uh, uh, account that seems to buttress the general sense that the Reagan uh, entourage writ large was trying uh, to meddle in uh, the hostage scandal in a way that would be politically beneficial to Reagan. But uh, Jane, I, I don't know. How, how do you look at it, given that William Casey obviously was willing to entertain notions of trading arms for hostages with the Iranians since he actually did that uh, in later years? It, is it possible that this was just the beginning of the plot? Well, thanks for asking. I I have to say that for years I've been a skeptic about the October surprise. I basically am skeptical hmm. about almost every kind of uh, conspiracy theory because I cover government and I see mostly dysfunction. <laughs> and I don't see people as able to to coordinate secret plots um, and without the public finding out. But I am reassessing that at this point because of this story and looking back, hmm. um, having written a whole book about the Iran-Contra affair, I really think it seems probable that um, this was the predicate and that Kay the fact that Casey was involved in both is really important. Um, Bill Casey, who was the campaign chairman in 1980 for Reagan, goes on to become the CIA director. Um, he was somebody who came out of the OSS. He loved sort of daring do skullduggery and secrecy. And um, it, it's just there's too much of a coincidence. There's a real pattern here. Wow. He was involved in both cases in as, as Susan just laid out, um, setting up secret channels through Israel t to sell arms illicitly to the Iranians, who were our avowed enemies, um, in both instances, it, it appears, um, very soon after the 1980 election, that some of those arms deals went through. And then again, we discovered in 1986 that this was a whole secret working channel. And the U.S. was selling arms to the Iranians and taking the profits and using them to fund a secret illegal war in Nicaragua. It was just a mind-blowing discovery then. But look at this. I mean, it's it's impossible not to see it as as laying the groundwork. It feels like we <laughs> I feel I missed it in the book. Well. Uh, but uh, but you know, it takes it but this is this is history again, takes time. History right? takes, it does. Time. takes time. To getting the story, I mean, it, you know, the one thing the truth takes time. And it wills out. I mean, I do think that the one of the political scene rules has to be that sometimes incompetence doesn't stand a chance against actual conspiracy and that there, were, there really are conspiracies. <laughs> the political scene will be back in just a moment. You know, I mean, and this is, I have to say, not, the, I mean, it's a stunning example. It's not the only shocking revelation of this order that's come out in, in recent years in terms of our history. I mean, there was, before that, of course, in 1968, we're learning more and more about what's been known as the Anna Chenault or Anna Chenault affair, um, depending on how you pronounce it, um, which took place in 1968. Evan, do you, you, can you explain or fill yeah. us in on that? I do love the, the 
process of going back and excavating these pieces of history because they are amazing and it's very easy not to know about them if you weren't if you weren't paying attention. Look, the, Anna Chenault was this kind of famous Republican activist and Washington hostess. She was the widow of a World War II General Claire Chenault who had been the commander of the Flying Tigers in China, kind of a celebrated figure. And in 1968, she was given this task by the Nixon administration to, in effect, negotiate with our own allies, the South Vietnamese, to get them to put off a peace settlement in the war in Vietnam in order to advantage the Nixon campaign over Hubert Humphrey. And what's fascinating is that for years, Nixon denied this up and down, said absolutely never did this thing. There was no Chenault affair. And what we now know, thanks to the work of historians and of the Freedom of Information Act and disclosure over the years, is that, in fact, there is very clear evidence of it. At one point, there was an intercepted phone call that the FBI recorded between Anna Chenault and the uh, and the Vietnamese embassy in which she said, quote, hold on to the South Vietnamese ambassador three days before the election, she said, we are going to win. And in effect, uh, this is going to be to your advantage to wait. And and I will just mention one other piece of data because I think it's important, which is that in 2016, the uh, biographer Jack Farrell writing about Richard Nixon uh, drew on these materials, notes from H.R. Haldeman, who had been working for Nixon at the time, who took down Nixon's instructions in which he said, quote, keep Anna Chenault working on South Vietnam and also, quote, any other way to monkey wrench it, anything that RN, meaning Richard Nixon, can do. Monkey wrench. What a word for something where I know we've also learned that that Lyndon Johnson had caught some wind of this and he was saying when 400 to 500 people were being killed a day still in Vietnam. And they're killing 400 to 500 every day waiting on Nixon. And it's despicable, and if it were made public, I think it would rock the nation. And they're monkey-wrenching back in Washington. Awful. Yeah. Yeah, Richard I, he Nixon called it treason, famous. I think. Yeah. yeah, Richard Nixon was famous for dirty tricks at the end of his presidency, but the truth is that his presidency started with a dirty trick, and this was the original dirty trick. And by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that Jack Farrell book, because that Nixon book is really is a terrific example. Mm. First of all, it's incredibly well written, great read. But it's also a good example of why people come back and back at these subjects. Uh, You know, uh, politics has its secrets and people uh, work very hard to keep them. And I, you know, again, to me, that's why it's not it's stunning but not surprising that we're learning new information about the Reagan October surprise. It's why we are uh, got to fully expect that we'll learn much more in the future about what Donald Trump uh, actually did uh, in the four years of his presidency and what he did in particular to try to hold on to it. Uh, we do not know so many important things about this present moment uh, in our politics. But I think the Chenault affair is an incredible story, actually, that people are not really familiar with because of the cynicism of it. Mm-hmm. And again, it, 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 it's something important to understand that these are not one-off scandals, but the idea that there would be multiple uh, American presidential candidates who would essentially decide that it was more in their interest to become president uh, than to follow along with the national security policy of the country. It's, 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 
really important to document these things. And I'm amazed, frankly, at the amount of information we now finally have confirming what would have been literally unthinkable to American voters in 1968 had they known about it. You know, something you said made me remember a wonderful point that Mark Shields, the, the late political commentator, used to make, which was campaigns, candidates' campaigns tell you a lot about what kind of president they're going to be. Mm. And you learn a lot. If they're playing dirty, cynical games in their campaigns um, to get elected, they're putting their own interests ahead of national security, innocent people's lives in these cases. You've learned something about their character, and it's going to be a uh, prologue to what kind of presidency they're going to have. And I think we've obviously seen that with, with Trump, which is, gets us back to, you know, why it is that something like the Stormy Daniels case um, gives you the first glimpse of what kind of character you're dealing with. Um, it's not actually the first glimpse. We'd had many glimpses with Donald Trump <laughs> right. by then, but, but, but it gives you a pretty good take of somebody's character yeah. and what he was willing to do. And, and, and it then goes on and repeats, and that's what these other cases are, aren't they? I mean, basically, we've got, you know, Su- Susan, you, you know, what happened in that call, with Z- the perfect call with Zelensky? Wasn't that just, it seemed complicated to much of the American public, but it's quite related, wasn't it? What's remarkable about Trump, though, is that often the scandal is right in front of you and it it comes out in real time and he still manages to to keep on going on. Uh, And, you know, Stormy Daniels was about a cover up. It was about uh, trying to keep something from the American public before they voted. And 2016 was a really, really close election. And so it's certainly possible to speculate about what might have been had this information come out, especially in the wake of the, uh, uh, remember, the October 7th, 2016 revelation of the Access Hollywood tape. If you had followed that up with the information about this very unseemly dealings with uh, the former porn star, it could have made a difference in an extremely close race. Now, in 2019, Fast forward, Trump is president, and he and Rudy Giuliani essentially are cooking up this 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 blackmail of Ukraine's president under threat from Russia. And as we know now, horrifically, this is no theoretical threat from Russia, but the actual threat of Russia c- coming in and carving up his country. This brand new uh, figure is elected, this outsider, Zelensky. And what's his first dealing with the United States that's his one hope for getting him uh, weapons like javelin uh, uh, missiles, for example. What's his one first dealing with Donald Trump? That perfect phone call. My call was perfect. The president yesterday of Ukraine said there was no pressure put on him whatsoever, none whatsoever. And he said it loud and clear for the press. What these guys are doing, Democrats, are doing to this country is a disgrace, and it shouldn't be allowed. I think just encapsulates the Trump presidency. Trump did such a masterful job of trolling uh, us that people forget what was actually in it, right? He says, oh, it was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. This was the phone call of a mobster. This was a very extraordinary uh, thing to capture on tape and then to release publicly, which Trump chose to do. Because basically you have poor Zelensky there squirming while Trump is saying, do us a favor, Do us a favor, though. I need you to talk to my attorney general. I need you to talk to Rudy Giuliani. I need you to get me 
this information and to work on these, quote, investigations. Whereas like Zelensky keeps trying to bring the conversation back. Well, well, Mr. President, could you, you know, what about the weapons that we need? Thank you so much. Hmm. And it's extortion, pure and simple. And the fact that it was done with regards to meddling an election, I will, I will, I keep going back to that remarkable speech by Adam Schiff at the end of Trump's impeachment trial. He's being acquitted in a very party line vote uh, by Republicans in the Senate. And Schiff gives a speech and he says, this was a case about an election interference. And if you don't stop him, he will do it again. And that's what's going to happen. It was a very prescient, I think, warning about what Trump would do in the 2020 election. I I think this is also a lesson in what are the full political effects of a scandal? Because I think there was a time after the impeachment process when people were saying, well, this shows actually the limits of impeachment, because after all, this guy is extorting a foreign uh, leader on tape, and yet here he is carrying on running for president again, except for the fact that we know that over time, there was a degree to which the parade of Trump's indignities, of his injuries to the office, of the ways in which he was doing violence to American political culture, it turned people off. And, you know, these are not people who are going to come out and announce it necessarily in advance. But when you look at the results of the 2020 election, you didn't have an overwhelmingly popular Democratic president, but you had a Republican president in Donald Trump who had committed these crimes and then the process had excavated them, made them as public and as apparent as possible. And that has a value, whether or not the impeachment itself removes him from office. Well, you know, if you look at this, we're talking about all of these cases, um, Nixon, 68, um, Reagan, 1980, Trump in 2016, Trump again in 2019, 2020, um, and then the January 6th. These are all Republicans. Are, are the Democrats not equally dastardly? Where, where are they in this history? <laughs> well, look, Jane, that's, a, that's an important point. I, I mentioned John Edwards, uh, the, the original uh, recent example of a hush money case. Uh, he, he was a Democrat. He was a progressive Democrat uh, uh, who, who, whose campaign for president didn't go very far. <laughs> uh, Bill Clinton, we talked about here, who, who was the first uh, modern example after Richard Nixon of a, an impeachment uh, case in a scandal, and it very likely would have resulted in his uh, indictment and possible conviction for lying under oath, uh, which is not something that you get to do even if you're president of the United States, had he not uh, made a deal. So there are many examples uh, of wrongdoing by Democrats. I have to say, having spent much of my career in Washington, one of the first things you learn as a journalist is that scandal knows no party. And, uh, you know, the will to power uh, and uh, the the incentives and the the corruption that power and money uh, and politics offer to people. Uh, there's just a long lineage of uh, Democratic members of Congress ending up uh, in jail and Republican members of Congress. So I do think it's important to point out that uh, it knows no partisanship. Uh, although these three examples that we're talking about today are truly extraordinary in terms of pushing the bounds of what we think of as as legitimate executive and presidential conduct. And there has been a, a view often expressed by Republican 
presidents uh, in recent decades uh, that that uh, the chief executive is almost unaccountable uh, in many ways. And that was a view that Richard Nixon himself propounded after he left office, uh, the idea that there is almost no nothing for which a, a sitting president of the United States could be held accountable for. Certainly, we all know Donald Trump has an almost, um, you know, Louis XIV view of, uh, you know, the state as being himself. So <laughs> he himself, uh, you know, has a view of almost unbridled executive power. Uh, but I, I just, I do worry that in this hyper-partisan moment, uh, because it's Republicans that we're talking about and because it's Donald Trump specifically, that the tribalism around this, it's caused people to make statements attacking the indictment of the former president without even knowing what's in the indictment in a way that I don't think we would have seen uh, even a few decades ago with Nixon or with Bill Clinton. You know, it's interesting that when Richard Nixon was facing impeachment um, and then had to resign, um, one of the thing, one of his henchmen at the time was Roger Ailes, who went on to run Fox News partly because he wanted there to be a news outlet that would be so partisan it would protect a president like Nixon if it ever happened again. And here we are where Fox News is out there. It, it, it sort of hesitated for a while about whether to rally around Trump yet again, but it is all in right now on this indictment, um, taking Trump's side and um, denouncing uh, the, the prosecution. And it's living up to Roger Ailes's dream of a news organization that will try to protect a president who is alleged to have broken the law. I have to say, though, you know, we're going to be talking about this in the weeks and months ahead. And I, I think just as a sort of point of personal orientation, of, of trying to stay focused on the things that matter, is sort of resisting the atmospheric pressure to say that the risks of indicting Donald Trump are simply too great uh, to, to be able to take it on its merits. And I, I think one of the things we're seeing right now is that that is, in the end, the dividing line between a country that has a functioning and just system of government and a country that doesn't. And if, if the decision had been made to say, well, we just can't take the risk, then you really do lose the ballgame. Totally agree. I would say, in the immortal words of Donald Trump, we'll see. Uh, you know, it, will, will Donald Trump face accountability for January 6th? Will he face accountability for becoming the first president in American history to seek to overturn the results of a lawful election? Uh, you know, that's, that's, in my view, kind of the whole, the whole ballgame here. Uh, you know, I think we've had many politicians who face the kind of charges that Trump is now facing in New York. That's a step along the way. Uh, but uh, I'm still waiting to see uh, whether, in fact, it will just be, you know, the thousands of foot soldiers in Donald Trump's army who go to jail for supporting him or whether Donald Trump or those who helped to organize and orchestrate and to call forth, uh, you know, this attack on American democracy, whether they're going to face charges or not. And I think, unfortunately, our conversation about the one case will always be tied up with those bigger questions surrounding Donald Trump. And as we're having this conversation today, let's take a breath and note he remains the front runner for 2024, which is a, a just a remarkable, remarkable commentary on our politics. Well, let's just hope that it doesn't take 43 years for the truth to come out. <laughs> 
This has been The Political Scene. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.